The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program, WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, its staff, or management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on 89.3 FM WMKV. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vina Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing, the only show on public radio dedicated to the proposition that you, too, can become financially independent through real estate investing. Today is the last Wednesday of the month, so that must make it question and answer week. And uh, this may be the last question and answer week we have for a couple of months because we've got some guests coming up uh, over the next few months that needed that last Wednesday of the month spot. So this is your big chance to ask any questions that you might have about buying or selling or managing or financing or getting in or getting out or whatever you want to know about real estate investing. 772-9658 is the number if you're in the greater Cincinnati area. 877-772-9658 if you're listening to us online at wmkvfm.org. You can also send an email to askvina at gmail.com and uh, do that earlier rather than later. I keep leaving the station, going home, and getting six emails from folks who sent them toward the end of the program, and I don't receive them while I am here. So any questions that you have about uh, real estate investing at any level, give us a call, send us an email. Uh, there's no show without you. The Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati meets tomorrow evening, September the 1st. It snuck up on us, and we have a great guest coming to the meeting, Andy Heller, who is a uh, past guest here on Real Life Real Estate Investing and an expert on two of the hottest strategies in the U.S. right now, buying bank-owned properties cheap and lease-optioning them to folks who can't qualify to buy right now, but will pay you every month to maintain your property and buy a year or two in the future. That meeting begins at six o'clock with an hour of question and answer with Andy, followed by his main presentation at 7.30. It is guest night at Cincinnati Rhea, so bring your friends, bring your relatives, bring your real estate agent, bring anybody that you'd like to, that you think needs to hear more about these great strategies. You can get more information at CincinnatiRIA.com. That's com, or by dialing 859-292-7342, 859-292-7342. It is question and answer week on real life real estate investing, which means I didn't... Um, plan a show. I just, you know, I'm just going to sit here quietly and wait for your calls at 513-772-9658 if you're here in Cincinnati 
or at 877-772-9658. Or again, you can send an email to askvina at gmail.com. In an example of emails that um, sometimes come in after the program is over. Uh, Received one last week from Scott in St. Paul, Minnesota. If you'll remember, the topic last week was basically negotiating to buy property subject to the existing loan and then wrapping that subject to loan with a new loan and uh, finding a homeowner buyer who wants to live there and pay on that new loan. If you missed that program, I'm sure it's available on our podcast on iTunes already, but Scott says, sorry if I missed this, but it seems like the biggest risk to this setup is that the lender on the original financing discovers that the loan has been taken over, objects the sale, and having someone else living in the property and making the payments. While wraps and subject tos are not illegal, the banks have the right to challenge them, so how do you deal with that? Uh, and of course, the thing that Scott is referring to that we did not get to address because, well, we ran out of time and also didn't get the email, uh, is the due on sale clause in the seller's existing loan. And Scott is correct that it is not illegal to buy a property that uh, has an existing loan and not pay that loan off. It can be a contract violation. The due on sale clause says that the bank is willing to, uh, or, or may, may be willing to, or is able to, let's put it that way, uh, call the loan due if the property is sold without paying off the loan. But uh, Scott, I think the important words here uh, in your email are, the lender discovers that someone else is making the payments. And I can tell you that we're just not seeing too many lenders in today's market that discover that someone else is making the payments and then says, but stop, we want the loan paid off. Because when they say stop, we want the loan paid off, oftentimes what they end up with is a foreclosure. And as you can imagine, banks aren't particularly anxious to generate new foreclosures at this uh, juncture in history. It's also the case that um, I know that many of the loans that David does get involved with are already in arrears at the time at which he gets involved with them. So he is actually catching up the payments and making the loan good. So you kind of have to ask yourself the question, how many banks are then going to say, oh, no, uh, stop making the payments. We're calling the loan due and we're going to take the property back. So is it a possibility? Yes. Yes. Is it a big concern for most people who are buying property subject to the existing loan? Not so much. So you will you will do as your legal accounting or other professional advisor tells you. Uh, time to take a quick break. Remember, it is question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate. Our numbers in the studio are 513-772-9658. If you're not in the greater Cincinnati area, you can call us toll free at 877-772-9658 or send an email to askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox, and I'm also sort of the kind of guest, sort of, because today's question and answer week. So really, you're the guest. You're the guest on Real Life Real Estate Investing. And uh, so you need to call us with your questions, comments, etc. at 772-9658 in the greater Cincinnati area. 
If you're listening from someplace else in the world, you can give us a call at 877-772-9658, or you can send us an email at askbina at gmail.com. You can also fan us up on Facebook by going to realliferealestateradio.com. When you do that, you'll be joining over 5,000 people who like real-life real estate. Still not as many fans as Bacon has, but pretty good if you ask me. Uh, Looks like uh, Frank from San Diego recently friended us on realliferealestateradio.com. He says, love your show and listen from San Diego. Well, gosh, Frank, excuse me, Fran, Fran, if you have any questions, give us a call. Did have a post on the wall there from Anne, who has a problem with a property management company, apparently um, a someone who has sold a turnkey rental. She says, I've invested money and I'm afraid it may all be gone. Uh, they won't return my calls or emails, and uh, she gives the location. Uh, and my recommendation to you would be call your attorney immediately, because many times if you happen to unfortunately get involved with a scamster, uh, it's a matter of who gets to them first as to who gets paid back anything if anybody gets paid back anything. So. Uh, I would definitely call your attorney and discuss the situation with him because if it's something more minor, like they're just uh, not especially competent or responsive, uh, perhaps uh, a letter from your attorney could fix that. Um, Going to go to the phones and talk to Chris on line one in Baltimore. Chris, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Hello, Vina. How are you doing today? Very good, Chris. How are you? I'm doing all right. Can't complain. I have a question. Um, you know how the real estate market is right now, and basically I'm kind of um, semi-starting um, wholesaling. And I'm just kind of curious, how is it possible for a wholesaler to really succeed in this market? Because the way I see it is there's so much, so, so much inventory in the market that an investor could just say, well, why would I need a wholesaler when the prices are pretty much be, are coming down to where I don't need your services to negotiate a deal? Mm-hmm. Uh, I will answer your question, Chris, but first I have to ask, what does it mean I'm semi-starting wholesaling? Well, I started for a few months, something came up, <laughs> and I'm starting to start back up again. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, have a jump start you, sound, you, sound, you sound so devoted to it. I'm, I'm semi-starting. You know, I'm so truly passionate about this, honestly. Uh, yeah, don't semi start. Like, just, just, just go for it, and I will tell okay. you. I will tell you why. It has always been the case when you think about it that an investor, and not, we're not talking about a wholesaler here. We're talking about someone who's going to buy the property and fix it and sell it or buy it and hold it, okay. could theoretically go out and get a wholesaler's price on any given property, right? Right. I mean, if, 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 if he's marketing to the same people you are, if he's looking at the same listings you are, if he's making offers on them, why, why would he ever need you in any market? Because in theory, he could get the same price you are and not even pay the additional fee that you would be asking, right? Right. And in any market, that's, that's true. Okay. So here's why um, buyers buy from wholesalers in any market 
up, down, doesn't matter, sideways. Um, there are an awful lot of people out there who don't have the time to do what you do as a wholesaler. They don't have the desire to do what you do as a wholesaler. And most importantly, as a wholesaler, you're not charging them any more than the deal they would be trying to make for themselves anyway. That, yeah, that makes, that makes sense. Okay, so let me tell you, there are a, a lot of wholesalers, especially when they're first semi-starting, uh, <laughs> they, they, get this, they get this sort of vision in their mind of who the buyer is. As if there were like like one guy out there who replicate has replicated a thousand times, and that's your buyer, and they usually have the wrong picture. the The guy who or gal who buys from a wholesaler is not typically the the big time real estate investor in the market. He's not the guy who's buying and selling fifty deals a year. That guy has his own marketing machine. He has his own assistant who's doing letters and postcards and all the things that you will do. Uh, he has his own negotiating team. He's not he's not just some dude running around trying to find deals for himself. The guy who's gonna who's going to not only buy from you as a wholesaler, assuming you're offering properties at the right price, but is going to appreciate your existence and is going to come back to you over and over and think you're offering a great service is the guy who maybe works full time and he's only gonna do two deals, maybe three deals a year because he works full-time and he's going to spend all of his time while he's got a deal going either fixing it overseeing the contractors getting it on the market dealing with buyers and then he's going to look up and he's not going to have another deal and if he goes out and and does what you do which is make 20 offers to get a deal right uh that's going to take him another six months okay so pretty much i'm more so looking for say the uh, passive investor that's looking to do like a few deals versus the say the active investor who pretty much have his own team in place to do it. Yeah, and you'll you'll sell to those active investors every once in a while, but and you would think they would be your very best buyer because they buy so many deals, but that's not what I'm finding. I'm finding your best one is the one who's going to do somewhere between one and maybe six or seven deals this year, because okay. you you make that guy's life easy. If he didn't have you, he would have to hire someone to go negotiate deals for him. Right? And you can't you can't keep somebody busy full time if you're only going to buy four deals this year. And yet, right. you know, it's it's it, like a wholesaler in any business. Every business has wholesalers, right? Right. What why do wholesalers in any business get paid? It would be so much easier uh, or, or let me say it would be so much cheaper for the um the uh, the clothing store to buy the clothing directly from the manufacturer in Taiwan. So why is there a wholesaler in between who gets paid? The answer is the guy who's managing the clothing store, he wants to manage the clothing store. He wants to merchandise and he wants to hire people and fire people and make sure the cash registers are running. He doesn't want to have to negotiate with Taiwan. That makes sense. As a, as a real estate wholesaler, you negotiate deals so that the person at the other end who's fixing them up can do what he do- does best which is fix them up sell them rent them whatever okay if you know okay one thing though okay with the way the market is i know you say you pretty much you have to find out what the what a buyer's um criteria what a what a um seller i'm saying what a buyer's criteria is but in this market with prices and everything just fluctuating so wildly how do you really you know if a if a seller if a buyer says they, they have a certain criteria today 
you know, it might change next week because they're working off a completely different set of numbers. I mean, how do you stay on top of this stuff? You never, first of all, you never, you never go out looking for a property for a particular buyer. That's that's what real estate agents do. You go you go look for deals. You look for you look for motivated sellers and right. and make an offer based on those usual formulae that that most investors are willing to pay. Okay, and then if you call the buyer who six months ago said I want a house in downtown Baltimore and I want it to be a row house and I want it to be two bedrooms and I want to pay around you know well down there six thousand bucks. And then you call him today, and he says, "Oh no, I don't want that area anymore. I, you know, I just it's 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 bottomed out. Whatever." Uh, so what? There's other buyers. If you yeah. if you negotiated the deal right, there are other buyers. Now, when you say that the market is fluctuating, it's really not fluctuating anymore. At least not in your area. Baltimore has kind of bottomed out. I know it's skipping along the bottom. Some months you see. The number of sales are up. Sometimes the number of sales are down. Sometimes prices are up a little. Sometimes they're down a, a little bit. But but it, it's it, the overall the prices have kind of gone down as far as they're going to go. Okay. And I think what you I think when you say you're seeing the market fluctuating, what you may be reacting to is the fact that when you look for comparable sales for any given property, they're all over the place. Right. That's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah, and that's there's 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 a reason for that. It's not it's not just that you know uh, last month that house was worth two thousand dollars and the month before that it was worth twenty and the month before that it was worth seven. That's 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 not what's happening. Uh, what's happening is th- th- those properties are of course in in various states of distress, and they were sold by sellers who were in various states of distress. Some of them will have been bank owned. Uh, some of them will have been landlords who just got sick and tired of being landlords. Some of them were maybe out-of-state owners who bought in Baltimore because it seemed really cheap at the time, and now they you know, are realizing what it's like to try and manage property from a 1,000 miles away. And the, the fact that you're seeing comparables, and li- literally I had a student send me a set of comparables today, one half mile of a particular property. All of them were two bedrooms, and the prices ranged from 2500 to $79,000. Wow. And that, That's a big spread. <laughs> well, but but here's the thing: when we really when we really dug down and looked at them, they were not all comparable. Because remember, what we're always looking for is the after repaired value of the property. Right. And we work backwards from there. There were only two properties in that whole mess, and there were like 17 of them. There were only two properties in that whole mess that were not sold by banks, that were not short sales, that were not clearly either distressed properties that were hideously ugly or else distressed sellers. And those two were in the thirty to $35,000 range. And that gives you a much clearer picture of what someone is likely to value that property at than saying, oh, well, somewhere between $2,500 and $80,000. That makes sense. So always start with the after-paired value. It's, it's much easier that way it's much easier to to sort of say oh okay i see why this guy only paid two thousand dollars for this house it's because the after repaired value was 80 and it needed 50 and work okay um Vina, can i ask you one more question please of course okay thanks um the way the, the way prices are right now um all us is clean all over the map should I basically try to find, like, say, um, should I get like access to the MLS, find a real estate agent who has access to it, or do you still think that the comparable services like RealQuest or Haynes are still 
good in this and using it in this type of market. Well, I'll tell you the the big difference between. MLS access and access to any of the comparable services, and I don't care which one you choose, so whether it's one of the free online ones, whether it's one of the ones that you pay for, is that MLS has two things, photos of the property, right, and often descriptions of the condition of the property at the time at which it was sold. All of these other systems get their data from the courthouse. The courthouse records simply say, it's five-room, two-bedroom, and it sold for $12,000. It doesn't say uh, it's a shell, plumbing stolen, wiring stolen. So you get a little better picture of what kind of condition the properties were in when you have MLS access of some sort, whether it's through an agent or whatever. Um, now, I actually, for many, 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 many years, only used the the comparable services because the thing I like about that is that it shows all sales, even if they did not happen through the MLS. Okay. So they support they sort of support one another. I would say if you do your initial comparables through any of the comping systems, and then uh, go look at the property. You know, so so like so like you, you get a call. You want to kind of figure out what it's worth. You get your comps. You go look at the property. You drive by the comps. And then you're looking for more detailed information to actually make the offer. That would be the time at which to have an agent on hand that could run the properties through the MLS and see if there were any comments on condition and so on. Okay. Sounds great. Okay. Well, Vina, thank you so much for your help. I much appreciate it. Thank you very much for your call, Chris. Okay, have a good one. Thank you. You too. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate, which means you can either call, as Chris did. The number is 877-772-9658 if you're outside the greater Cincinnati area, or 772-9658 if you're inside. Or you can also send us an email at askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It is the last Wednesday of the month. It is question and answer week. That means without you, there is no show. So if you have questions, give us a call at 772-9658 or 877-772-9658. You can also send us an email at askvina at gmail.com. Oh, this is bad. I just got an email that has absolutely nothing in the body of the email. I'm really hoping that uh, I'm not having an email problem. That would make for an ugly question and answer week. Uh, just before that, though, got a question from JC in Las Vegas. I've been unable to sell my house in this market for anything close to what I owe, but I'm still making the payments. How do I evaluate potential property managers? to decide who should rent the property for me. It seems like everyone claims to do this now. Wow, that is a great question, by which I mean I'm not 100% sure how to give you a complete answer on that question. By far, the biggest complaint that I am hearing right now in the general real estate world with questions I get at RIA, questions I get when I travel, around the country, uh, folks sending emails to the show, posting on uh, the realliferealestateradio.com page, is my property manager is stealing me blind. 
I'm hearing that over and over and over. And there are so many variations of how that's happening from I signed up with him and I just never have heard back ever to I've been billed for tens of thousands of dollars worth of repairs that I don't think are actually being made to I've got a four family and I've been being told for six months that it's only half full and I happened to be in town and looked at the property and it's completely full and yet I'm only getting half the rent uh, to you know, repairs being made poorly, tenants being put into the property without any real screening and then they move out again two months later. I mean, seriously, it is ugly out there in the property management world as a whole. Now, that does not mean there are not good property managers out there. Of course, I don't hear that. I don't get people calling me and saying, I just want to tell you how happy I am with my property manager and that he's just absolutely awesome. A couple of pieces of advice that I would give you. Number one, uh, property managers in every state in this country, as far as I'm aware, are required to have a license. Usually it is a, uh, a realtor's license, the same, the same sales license that people get to become real estate agents. In some places there are separate property management licenses. I certainly would not go with someone who had not bothered to take the steps required to get that license. It's not that difficult. Uh, those folks are bound by the rules of the um, the state boards to do things like keep your money in a separate escrow account and to treat you with fairness, etc. Thus, they have something to lose if they don't do those things, specifically their real estate licenses. So the first question I would ask is, are you licensed? And if so, what's your license number so that I can look you up in the state's records or call the state and make sure that 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 you are in fact you know licensed uh also i would of course ask for references although i will tell you like contractors they're not going to give you the references of the folks that are unhappy with them so uh one way to check that is to go on one of the online advertising sites that advertises rentals see what they're advertising look up the address of the owner through the through your county website and maybe track down the owner separately and say, hey, how long have they been working for you? Uh, is this is it a good arrangement? Are you happy with what's going on, etc.? I think the, the the best piece of advice I can give you, and the one the one that I least often see people doing, is be quick to fire a property manager that is not. Uh, doing what you expect the property manager to do, uh, particularly if there's money involved, particularly if you're hearing, oh, that checks in the mail, that checks in the mail, that checks in the mail, and it doesn't come time to get that property manager out of your tenant's life and your life and uh, notify the tenant that they are no longer to send the rent to the property manager. Incidentally, property managers should also have property management agreements. It shouldn't just be a handshake thing or a thing on the telephone. And that property management agreement should should clearly specify uh, what it is that they're going to be doing and paying for and what it is that you're going to be doing and paying for. And I think the sign of a good property manager is one who will not put up with you not keeping your property in good shape. If you have a property manager who just doesn't seem to care what kind of condition your property is in, then you've got the kind of property manager who's um, either not very busy or not very anxious to get the best possible tenants. My property manager uh, doesn't let, if, 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 a, if a property is in bad shape, you know, or, or needs a repair, uh, he makes sure it gets done and that I pay for it so that uh, 
the good tenants stay and he doesn't have to work to refill the unit and that he doesn't get tons and tons of applications from bad tenants who don't care about the condition of the property. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week so far. Let's see. We've had questions about subject twos. We've had questions about uh, um, property managers. We've had questions about wholesaling. So as you can see, it is uh, kind of open mic day here on Real Life Real Estate. You can give us a call at 772-9658 or 877-772-9658. Also, uh, you can send us an email at askvina at gmail.com, as did Alexi, who says, how should I decide whether I should pursue short sales at all? And if so, which ones? They're all over the place in my cities. There are realtors involved with them. They're time-consuming, et cetera. Well, Alexi, you are uh, just repeating the same complaints that folks have had about short sales since the first day that they became known as short sales, probably 10 years ago. Uh, They take forever. The banks are not cooperative. They often don't close, even though I, you know, made them a very fair offer. And I, I, I backed it up with endless information. And, and, and even though at one point the loss mitigator said that they would be accepted and then they changed their minds and yeah, short sales are an interesting little world unto themselves. And this is generally what I would say to you is if you are a new investor, if you are trying to get your first deal under your belt, I would not say that short sales is probably the way to go after that first deal because they do take a while. They are almost 100% of the time accepted by the seller. In other words, when you say to the seller, I can't pay you what your house is worth, but I'll work to get it down to what I can pay, they're going to say yes pretty close to 100% of the time. But in terms of what's happening on the back end of the short sale, is the bank actually accepting uh, the offer? Let's just say it is a fraction of a hundred percent of the time that it's uh, that the offers are actually being accepted. There are certain banks that are easier to work with than others on short sales. Uh, there are certain short sales that are easier than others. For instance, if the uh, property has a first mortgage and a second mortgage, and the second mortgager is not the same as the first mortgager, and the second mortgage is, uh, you know, say forty thousand dollars, and the first is sixty, and you want to pay sixty-five, you're going to have a lot easier time with that short sale, with getting the second mortgager to accept five, and the first mortgager to take his entire sixty. Then you are, if you're trying to pay 60 for a property that the first mortgager is actually owed 60 on. And I should be saying mortgagee, not mortgagor. Simon Legree is the mortgagee. Uh, so the people that I know that are still making good money in short sales fall into two categories. Either they are doing a lot of them. They have a business built around negotiating, influencing BPOs, marketing to sellers, et cetera. And it doesn't matter to them that nine out of 10 of their deals don't close because at any given time, they've got 20 or 30 deals working. The other kind of person that I've seen making good money in short sales are real estate investors who are also real estate agents because uh, when the deal, when it becomes clear that the bank is not going to accept an investor price on a short sale deal, uh, you can often turn around and list it as the as a real estate agent and at least take a commission out of the deal. And I've 
I've seen a couple of folks across the country, and I'm sure there are many more that I observe directly, who are making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year doing a combination of negotiating short sales on their own behalf and listing short sales uh, and selling them to the public or to other investors and so on for a commission. So a uh, brand new investor for a deal, wouldn't do it. Been around for a while trying to decide whether or not you want to pursue short sales. I would say plan to make a business out of it. And you know, I, even, I will pursue a short sale here and there when it's going to be one of those easy ones where the mortgagee is not a blender, but it's a, uh, there's a lien from a nursing home on the property or something like that. I'll, I'll, I'll do those. But the ones with the big banks, whew, I wish I had recorded my conversation two days ago with one of the largest banks in the United States that I've been trying to work a short sale with for a little over a year now. And I got put on hold and transferred around to seven different people, none of whom were the person who I was actually trying to talk to. And I repeated exactly the same set of information seven times. Seven times. Here's the loan number. Here's my name. Here's who I am. Here's the property address. Here is the owner's name and the occupancy uh, is vacant. I don't have time for that stuff. Real Life Real Estate Investing is question and answer week 772-9658 or 877-772-9658 are the numbers to call. You can also send us a an email at askvina at gmail.com. Support comes from Paul R. Rigney and Associates. With over 21 years experience in personal financial services, Paul Rigney specializes in asset preservation strategies. Clients who chose the conservative strategies did not lose during the recent market downturn. More information or to schedule an appointment with Paul R. Rigney and Associates at 792-9200. Well, not a whole lot has changed as far as traffic's concerned. We still have an accident, Harrison, in Queen City. Still have an accident, South 75, south of Paddock, blocking the right lane. We do have some additional uh, delays to report. Sixth Street's uh, viaduct, especially heavy, out of downtown over toward the Elberon split because of construction. East 275 are ex- exceptionally heavy this afternoon between Montgom- Montgomery and Ward's Corner. And westbound 275 between Winton and Hamilton. Some backups there as well. Your forecast tonight, partly cloudy skies. We'll only get down into the upper 60s tonight and then tomorrow back up into the mid-90s. And then uh, hotter on uh, Friday and then Saturday. Uh, But next week looks pretty good. Right now, though, it's uh, right around 90 degrees here at 89.3 WMKV. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate. Any questions that you have, you've got about uh, five, maybe ten more minutes to email them in at askvina at gmail.com. That's A-S-K-V like in Victor, E-N-A at gmail.com. Or give us a call at 877-772-9658 or locally here in Cincinnati at 513-772-9658. Eight, And uh, if you are listening to this as a podcast and wondering how in the world I'm taking questions when it's just a podcast, remember Real Life Real Estate is live on Wednesdays from 5 to 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And uh, you can listen it if you're like not here in Cincinnati, you can listen at WMKVFM.org. 
A question from Fred in Indianapolis. I have one single-family rental home held in an LLC. Can that LLC be sold instead of selling the property alone? Is there a way to guarantee the LLC is clean to a buyer, or is this just wrong? (laughs) Well, Fred, there's nothing wrong with it because, uh, you know, people sell shares in corporations and membership units in LLCs all the time. If the only asset of that LLC happens to be a piece of property, then by selling the membership units in the LLC, you have in fact effectively sold the control of the rental property, haven't you? Uh, If I were buying your LLC to get control of your rental property, I would want to do a title search on the rental property. Uh, I I would be almost more concerned about did the rental property carry any liens than I would about whether the LLC did. Um, If the LLC owes money, that's extremely, like if the LLC has a judgment against it, it's going to be recorded in the public record. And if the LLC, uh, I don't know, has a credit card or something like that, that's going to be extremely unusual because most owners of small limited liability companies are using their personal credit, not corporate credit, to get loans and credit cards and things like that. But somebody could take the uh, EIN number and effectively run a credit check against the LLC to make sure that nothing like that was in question. Now, the one thing that you would need to do before what you're suggesting, which is selling the LLC instead of selling the rental property, I mean, in fact, I know to you is the same way, same thing. You don't control the rental property, but you would need to talk to your tax professional about what, if any, tax consequences might change in selling the membership shares of the LLC as opposed to selling the property itself. A question from Willie, and it looks like Willie is in Long Island. Uh, The biggest problem I hear investors talking about in my region is the rampant theft of copper from even briefly vacant properties. What can be done to deter this or deal with it? Well, Willie, I will see your theft of copper and I will raise you theft of wiring. The copper is not inexpensive to replace. You replace it with something like PEX or some plastic plumbing so that the copper thieves won't come back and just get it again. When they steal your wiring, two things happen. Number one, you can't put in, you can't put back in non-metallic wiring. I have tried it and it does not carry electricity. I guess I should have remembered that from eighth grade science class. Number two, pulling wire and rewiring a property is significantly more expensive than putting in the new copper because electricians just absolutely hate having to take those little stubs that are left when people cut your wire at both ends and try and wire them back together and figure out where everything goes. And this is clearly a policing problem. And yes, it is happening throughout the United States. It is costing hundreds of millions of dollars a year between the folks who are bothering to replace their plumbing and wiring and the folks who are abandoning the properties because it's not worth it to them 
to spend thousands and thousands of dollars. Oh, and by the way, what's happening with all this plumbing and wiring? It's going to the scrapyard. And the folks who are taking it to the scrapyard are getting uh, 50 bucks for the plumbing and wiring that it is literally going to cost you $6,000 to replace. This is just wrong. And why the folks who run the scrapyards are not being prosecuted for receiving stolen goods. Oh, I know. We didn't know it was stolen. Right. Somebody shows up with a dump truck full of six foot long pieces of wiring and eight foot long cut off with a hacksaw pieces of plumbing and you didn't know it was stolen. What? You thought someone was replacing the copper water pipe in their house because it had gotten old? That's ridiculous. The way to stop this is have the police take it seriously. If you've ever actually called the police about a uh, copper theft uh, in progress that you were watching and had them show up two hours later and then tell you that the license plate number that you had written down of the truck that drove off with the copper in it, they can't do anything with that because for all they know, the truck was stolen. Well, okay, wouldn't that be another reason to investigate this? And putting tougher laws in place to prosecute the people who are accepting and really profiting from all this scrap would be the way to go. But you know what? The powers that be don't seem to care. I mean, they care when 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 one of these folks goes in and clips a uh, wire in a house where the electric is on and gets electrocuted. But they don't care so much when, uh, you know, it's just some some greedy landlord complaining about somebody who just came and stole a little bit of wire. What is the big deal? There's not really a whole lot you can do to deter these folks. Uh, they're going to break windows. They're going to kick in doors. Uh, I had a property go vacant in northern Kentucky. And in 24 hours, despite the fact that we immediately boarded the house up, the door had been kicked in. Every scrap of copper was gone. We went back and re-secured it. The next day, it was kicked in again. And the sink was stolen. Because I'm sure stainless steel has a lot of scrap value. Um don't know what to tell you. It's 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 terrible. It is a complete abdication by law enforcement and by city councils and the folks who create the laws regarding uh, acceptance of this stuff. And it is costing this country, I would guess, a billion dollars a year. So sorry, I don't have a better answer for you than that. <laughs> Just got a an email from Robert saying, we're not on Eastern Standard Time. We're on Eastern Daylight Savings Time. <laughs> so the fact that I keep telling people that, you know, it's from 5 to 6 Eastern Standard Time is not entirely accurate at this time of year. But if we wait a few months, it will be. A question here from... Let me go back off that of Robert's email here and see who this is from. This is from Michael... And he is from, let me go down to the bottom of the email and see if well, it looks like New Jersey because uh, he left a phone number. Is there a relatively easy way to pre-screen a potential apartment building deal without having to get the financials, tax returns, and rent rolls from the owner? Uh, yeah, Robert, most, or sorry, Michael, most people do have uh, sort of a, a little spreadsheet set up where there's there's commercial programs, software programs available. 
that do this same thing that you can you can run some very quick very rule of thumbish uh what ifs through and you you may not have the rent roll from the owner but you should have the unit breakdown you know it's got it's got 37 units and 17 of them are two bedrooms and the other 20 are, are one bedrooms that sort of things you can go to you can go to any of the online uh rental advertising places and figure out approximately what a two-bedroom should rent for in that area, approximately what a one-bedroom should rent for in that area. Uh, real estate taxes are easy to get out of the public record. Uh, you can make a quick call to your insurance agent and say, hey, what would something like this cost to insure? Uh, you can you can um, run some scenarios through about financing. And generally what you do there is you apply a rule of thumb as to the other operating expenses, things like vacancy and maintenance and so on. And the only the only goal of this is to end up with a number that says, eh, maybe this is worth looking at, or oh gosh, this person is absolutely insane asking what they are asking for this property. So, uh, you know, just uh, really what it is is you're kind of making some best guesses and coming up with a medium case scenario. And hey, if the if the seller's asking for four hundred thousand and you're you're Best guess says it's probably worth somewhere around five hundred thousand. I'd probably make an appointment if he's asking four hundred thousand. And what you're seeing says that he should be asking two. Uh, maybe you should pass on that because I know evaluating apartments fully, going out to look at them, going through all the units, etc. Um, it is uh, very time consuming, and I can understand why it is that you want to make that as short as possible uh question here from another michael i discovered your show via podcasts and it's just what i needed um it's great what you do giving the little guy access to the best in the business i'm in my early 20s i'm an aspiring real estate investor i have a background in finance a real estate license and i'm using real estate as a tool to build wealth uh, but i'm having trouble getting started even though most markets are right for the picking i've been exposed to investing by my family primarily in the austin area where college students College students can be rented within a day or two, or do you mean college apartments can be rented within a day or two? Uh, they're good, smart, reliable tenants. We can iron out any issues. I currently live and work in Houston, uh, where I have the down payment for a conventional loan, uh, although I would have nothing left. Or I could qualify for an FHA loan as a primary resident in Houston. That way I could put less down and more to repairs and turn it into investment property. The problem is I am not comfortable or sure about who to target here in Houston and what type of property I should buy. There really isn't a college student market because most of the students commute. So my dilemma is, do you think it's better to purchase a more expensive property in an up-and-coming area, fix it up nicer, and bank on renting it out to yuppies for almost flat cash flow? Are there still yuppies? I thought they... I thought they put the nail in that coffin around like 1998. Um, but I know who you mean. Uh, or should I have the faith in the tried and true method of targeting the fifty dollars to $80,000 properties that could cash flow, even though I'm very uncertain if these properties can be rented out and the types of tenants they would attract and whether it would appreciate? This may allow me to add another one in a year. So in other words, cheaper property that you're less comfortable with or more expensive property that you're more comfortable with and that is wow that is a question that um if we were sitting down face to face and talking it would still take me two hours of asking you questions to answer but i can tell you michael there's a there's a basic thing here that you are coming up with and by the way that that real estate investors association price that you named here 
is about three times higher than typical. And the reason is that that particular real estate association is a for-profit group that, um, yeah, is not not association of real estate investors so much as it is a guy making money off the group. Anyway, um, you're, the thing you're running across is you are used to a particular kind of tenant. You are used to a particular kind of rental property because that's what you grew up with. Same thing happened to me. Uh, if you look around the wider market, you're going to find there is a lot of market for those cheaper rental properties. And as a matter of fact, they're going to cash flow more and you can buy two of them. So all other things being equal, I would say go with the cheaper property, even though you're uncomfortable with it, because there will be tons of people who want to rent it and you'll be able to buy twice as many. Uh, thank you for your email and to all listeners who helped me out today by asking questions on question and answer week. We'll be back next week with a very special offer for all you folks who want more great real estate education. So be sure to tune in until then. Happy investing. This is 89.3 WMKV, Reading, Ohio.